This is your cast, hosted by the York Politics Society. to another episode of your cast i'm georgia and i'm here with adam hello again <laughs> uh today we're going to be doing a very probably very long awaited episode we're going to be talking about the coronavirus pandemic which is something that i think for the past well since march you have not been able to avoid i think pretty much everyone knows that we are in a pandemic um as you will probably be, um, we are currently in a lockdown as of recording this, um, and presumably you will also be still in lockdown. Uh, we've got about a week left before we come out, but uh, the last four weeks have also been very eventful in terms of the various political aspects of this pandemic. Obviously, there's a, there's a lot of biological news, but we're not a biology podcast, and we're not a virology podcast, we are a politics podcast, and we'll be talking more about the political side of a lot of what's gone on. So we'll start by talking about the um, opposition that's begun to uh, spring up as a result of the second lockdown. Um, what's perhaps odd about this in particular is that um, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party are not the dividing lines on this. Uh, the Labour Party and the government are both in support of uh, this lockdown. However, what we're seeing is a increasing conservative backbench rebellion against or opposition to towards this uh, towards the second lockdown, and also the tier system that's coming into place on the second of November or third of November, I should say, um, particularly regarding the nature of how Christmas will be this year. Yeah. I think there was something over 70 Tory MPs were planning a rebellion when Boris Johnson brought his Christmas lockdown exit strategy to the Commons. So obviously, like you said, I think it's not so much party dividing thing anymore because Keir Starmer has pretty much said throughout this entire... Even before lockdown, he said that the Labour Party would support a second lockdown, that they are supporting the government in whatever kind of strategy they want to take. Mm. I mean, what's interesting with perhaps where there is a Labour-Conservative divide. It's not so much on the issue of lockdown itself, but the issue of when it should have been. Um, now, obviously, we saw in Wales uh, the two-week fire-break lockdown um, back during what was their October half-term, extended by a week, kept schools shut. That was something that was suggested here. It was suggested by Starmer and by the Labour Party, and it was a policy that they wanted to uphold and wanted to get passed, but obviously didn't happen, and we ended up in the nature of the lockdown that we're in now. Um the only thing we are seeing with the post-lockdown tier system is that Labour wants more clarity on the nature of the tiers and the nature, and also which areas are going to be in which tier, because you see, there have been changes since the lockdown came into place as to which areas should be in lockdown, and yeah. before, which areas in various tiers. And also a much stricter tier system when we come out of lockdown, apparently. Mm-hmm. So even if you're in tier three it still means that you can't have hospitality open, it still has to be takeaway. So pretty much if you're in a tier three area, you still are in your own lockdown. 
And it also seems to be that there is a massive north-south divide when it comes to what places are placed in which tiers. Oh, that's something I was going to um, bring up, actually. But yeah, um, <laughs> the the north-south divide within this whole, well, particularly the second, what well, yeah. the second phase of this crisis has been particularly stark. Um, I know I'm currently down in the southeast at the moment. You know, we are, I'm expecting us to be in tier one because wow. we are, um, whereas... I was still in York, if you want to know whether it be in tier two or tier three, and areas like uh, Manchester, Lancashire, uh, West Yorkshire, uh, all have been pretty disproportionately affected by this, um, by the nature of the lockdowns and also the nature of what those lockdowns entail for businesses and for individuals, I suppose. Yeah, being in York has actually been quite interesting to watch the tier system come into place because I feel like we were in North Yorkshire and I feel like everywhere in Yorkshire was being affected, we could literally see it, like, closing in around us, especially... Well, York, yeah. It's... Going sort of on a tangent, York has been a pretty interesting anomaly in yeah. the north, and it's usually been the last one to fall, which is interesting considering... Yeah, of... I've always thought that was really interesting, especially because it's such a student city. Mm. I think when the students came back was when it really started to affect yeah. it more. I suppose that, that's an issue that um, obviously has affected a probably everyone listening to this podcast um, yeah. unless you're not a student i'm sorry if, if you're not um but the the nature of the how students have been treated during this pandemic has increasingly become a political issue not within the main parties but actually within fringe parties it is ironically the only politician really fighting for student tuition fee refunds happens to be nigel farage so uh, <laughs> uh yeah so that's uh, been an interesting an interesting one um, nice i see the tables that. turning yeah, um, I will be honest. I'm not a supporter of him. Um, <laughs> I'm going to try and try and keep as impartial as possible here, but um, not a supporter of him. But this has maybe come back and say, well, actually, wait, Nige, you know. But yeah. I think um, what will be interesting to see is um, how students are treated come January and how students sort of return to university. How that's going to be managed because obviously the return home. Uh, we have heard of the plans. Um, I won't be there to see how they. Uh, happen in action because I'm already home but uh, for the rest of you who are in York or perhaps will be in York by the time you listen to this uh, it'll be interesting to see how well the government's plan works and... so for anyone who doesn't know because I'm not sure if this is happening at every uni in the country I'm pretty sure they're trying to get it to as many as possible but York is one of the universities that's going to be taking place in the rapid testing program so I think it's the idea is you book two tests within three days before you return home and I think you're meant to get the results within 15 minutes to an hour of taking the test which is a massive difference to what happened like how it happened when we first came to university it's really interesting to see how in about 10 weeks they've turned this round into like mass testing well mass testing does seem to be increasingly becoming the um one of the forms of um, combating the disease because not only yeah. have we seen it with students but also in Liverpool and um, mass testing is looking like one of the key um, government strategies in order to deal with t- tier three areas. Um, whether that works is obviously up for, up for debate but um, and we'll see what happens as uh, more areas find it but uh, it seems like the Liverpool one was a success I could see. So I think a lot of kind of following on as well like a lot of students will want to get tested because I think when you're at university there's been a lot of households isolating together and it's been okay because it's been students but I feel like there's a bigger responsibility when you're 
going home. Absolutely. And it's something I've I thought when I came home, it was something that I think a lot of students who have chosen to go home early have um, dealt with. But it yeah. remains to be seen. Um, it sorry. will be interesting to see when we come back for next term how, if the mass testing will happen again or how they're going to plan to get us back. I think our vice chancellor's already said that our term is going to start as planned on the 11th of January. Mm-hmm. That would like be in blended learning. But whether how he's planning on getting everyone back. Is he planning on getting everyone back? I'm really not well, sure. Well, it, may, it will remain to be seen. Um, it'll be interesting to see how much, what goes on in January. Yeah. So there are, is a risk of a third lockdown um, or yeah. increased measures. And um, it'll be interesting to see, as we said before, about the um, Tory rebellion uh, at the moment. Uh, how much that will grow and whether that will grow um, and whether this could be a key factor in perhaps bringing Boris down um, as some are speculating it could be. Do you think? Um, I mean, I think there's going to be a whole lot of things. Um, I don't think, I mean, I personally don't think Boris Johnson has that long left in the job. I don't think he wants to be there longer. Um, I think this has really, I'll be honest, really worn him out and really... He's yeah. probably really not enjoyed this. Um, but I think this is... Seeing a split within the party on this, when I don't remember... There probably was opposition, but it was sort of less noisy um, within the party a couple of... Well, back in, in March for the um, initial yeah. lockdown. I remember when um, they passed the kind of... I think it was the rule of six and everything went through Parliament back in September. I remember there were like whispers of a rebellion then, but it only turned out to be something like 20 MPs. And now this time we've got the risk of something like 70. Well, exactly. I mean, I think the big factor is probably the fact that um, we do have to get parliamentary approval to do anything now. Um, but to see such a split in the party when a lot of the candidates chosen for 2019 were chosen for their loyalty um, to Brexit uh, in particular and therefore theoretically behind Boris. The fact that there is starting to be a divide within the party, it's not a massive divide but it's about as big as the ERG is or was. Um, whether this will will start seeing perhaps cabinet members start to make their claim for the top job. That will be interesting. Off. There's already, people have already been saying, well, since the beginning of the pandemic about Rishi Sunak potentially rising up to um, Tory leader and potentially Prime Minister if Boris decides that he wants to quit. Yeah, well, um, I mean, that sort of very well leads into the, perhaps the other major thing that's been going on during this uh, lockdown period, which is obviously the shake-up in number 10 now. Wow, um, yeah. <laughs> as we found out, um, a lot of speculation was that Cummings left because of the uh, leaking of the lockdown plans back in uh, October, well, end of October. Um, if you remember the Saturday morning waking up and finding out that we were going to go into lockdown in, on, on the Thursday. That was... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just yeah, remember was... sitting in the living room and getting the news notification and everyone else was just playing games or watching TV and I was like, I felt like I was Fiona Bruce or something delivering the news to everyone, like, we're going into lockdown Thursday and everyone's being like, oh, yeah. okay. 
Um, so that was the initial thought of why he was, um, or why he left. But um, the reality is perhaps a little more, uh, I'd say, unconventional. I mean, I don't blame Boris for being angry at someone who insulted his fiance, but for all that <laughs> Cummings did, um, for that to be the reason why he's sacking. You know. I was very, very surprised that Cummins left. Mm. That was... Well, I sp- yeah. I, I was sp- about to say that was one thing I didn't see coming, but then I thought that is a absolutely horrific pun. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't, didn't see it coming. I think <laughs> I, I think the reason why a lot of people didn't see it coming was um, obviously the amount of political capital that um, Boris yeah. expended back in May when uh, he did the, his little uh, eye test to Barnet Castle. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, so the fact that this was what it took to take him out, um, he's kind of reflective of the nature of how governance is going on in, in Number 10 at the moment. And I don't say that. I say that sounding very biased against Boris Johnson. Uh, you can probably tell my political opinions based on that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think I, I'm not necessarily forgiving of him for, for the pandemic, but I don't think he can be blamed entirely for a lot of what's gone on because it's a lot of, yeah, it's a completely unexpected situation. But yeah, that is one area where I find it unforgivable. And, I uh, think it's, be... yeah, it's a lot of, obviously, we're in a pandemic, which has never happened before in any of our lifetimes. Well, the last pandemic was what was Spanish flu. Yeah, so, which was about hundred years ago. So. Yeah, so, then you know some people might have experienced that, but for the vast majority of us, this is like uncharted territory. So you do, I think, yeah, if I had to forgive a government for initial mess ups, I think the, the way that we saw in Italy and then when it came over to Spain, you know, that was kind of just the world was on fire for a bit. But then I think the unforgivable bit has come in in everything that's happened since when everyone's when the scientific groups have been saying to the British government like you need to do this or you have time to do this and you can prevent this and they've not listened and then gone ah we don't know why this is happening yeah well I mean that that's a big thing behind that whole uh, circuit breaker yeah is that that was what was being supposedly that was what was being suggested by the sage group yeah I was about to say because Mm. Because Sage suggested it, which is, I'm pretty sure, which is why it got implemented in Wales, mm-hmm. because they followed um, the scientific advice. But see, we didn't, and uh, we ended up going to lockdown anyway. Yeah. At first, when Sage suggested a circuit break lockdown, and Boris Johnson wouldn't implement it, and then we saw Wales going to lockdown, I did think, oh, well, that's, England's not going to go into a lockdown then, because this is, like, a sign of devolution, we're not going to go into a lockdown. Wales wants to prove that they're, they have the power to go into a lockdown, so they're going to. Scotland's doing their own thing. And then suddenly it was like, we're going into a month-long lockdown. And I was like, surely this is a signal or, like, indicative of a failure if you've got other nations in the UK going into 17-day lockdowns and we have to go into a full month-long lockdown. Well, we've seen um, Boris increasingly criticise the devolution settlements and indeed the nature of, of devolution, uh, with particular emphasis on Scotland, um, seeing as independent sentiment has perhaps only increased during this pandemic. Yes, uh, with the various handling completely. of it. Um, I think it will be interesting to see how much perhaps uh, the regionalised approach, particularly in Scotland, will impact future campaigns 
particularly for Scottish independence, should we get another independence referendum coming up, which at this point I've got a feeling it's inevitable. I think it's um, inevitable, but I also think there is such fervent opposition to it in Westminster at the moment. Every few weeks I feel like I read a news article where someone has to come out and say that there's not going to be an independence referendum because there is such a buzz for it in Scotland yeah. at the minute. I think I read somewhere that if Scotland had an independence referendum like this week, it would become independent. Well, that, that's sort of been the, the growing trend over the last, well, pretty much since the pandemic. Well, not even that. I think it's been pretty much since Brexit. I don't know. That's been the sentiment that's started to grow, but I think this has only strengthened it um, that's very because true. of the nature of how different the regionalised approaches have been. But support for Welsh independence has been growing a mm. lot as well. I think... Welsh independence is up to 33% now, which obviously is not a majority, but it, yes, Cymru, which is like the group that campaigned for Welsh independence a few weeks ago, so in, um, support grow like by like 5,000 members over two days. It was really crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I obviously, like you said, it's, a, it's not a majority, but it is, again, indicative of the impact perhaps devolution has had on this pandemic and how... Like you said, different the approaches have been and how the reaction to those approaches and how we'll see that develop in the future. I think what is what is interesting is that they do seem to be having a more unified approach towards Christmas. There does seem to be a sort of consensus amongst all four nations that families should be able to meet up. I was quite surprised at this, to be honest, because I saw... I think it's been a bit of back chatter in England for a while now, this like relaxing of um, regulations, allowing three or four, is it three it's about, Yeah, it's about three or four, yeah. Three or four to meet over, like, over the 23rd to the 27th of December. I think because England have had a month-long lockdown, it was kind of expected to come here because I think you can't keep people in lockdown and then make them be in lockdown over Christmas as well. But I did think there was going to be a full regional approach for Christmas because that's the way they've taken everything and because of their different lockdowns as well. But I guess maybe this does come back a bit to a student thing as well because from my perspective, obviously, I'm going back to Wales for Christmas and my big worry the past few weeks has been having to do lockdown in England so that I can stay in York for the rest of my university term travel back down to Wales in the travel window and then end up going back into a lockdown in Wales because their, like, timings don't match up. Well, yeah, and I think that that has been, a, like I said, a very big issue in that there is going to be a mass exodus of, of students across the four nations. Um, it is going to be a, a very interesting time to sort of see how a unified approach could, could work. I mean, I think what some people have pointed out, obviously, is that Christmas does seem to have become the exception. Um, a lot yes. of other religious festivals in the UK obviously happened during lockdown and through various restrictions and haven't been allowed to happen in the way that they otherwise would have happened. Yet the government seems insistent on making Christmas as normal as possible, which I, I, I don't know what you think about that. I think, I think it's... Obviously, Christmas is po- probably the biggest religious holiday compared to other religions. But mm. so maybe, maybe it's more kind of 
that that's their logic behind wanting to push Christmas so much. But also at the same time, the way they handled all other religious holidays was appalling, I think, personally. Oh, absolutely. Um, I completely agree. Releasing um, via like a press statement the night before Eid on Twitter that um, West Yorkshire's gone into Tier 3 and like household mixing is banned in areas that are like predominantly Muslim. Oh, absolutely. And that was, again, not just signifying the North South divide, but also the big divides in um see the the nature of the ethnic build-up of various areas of the uk yeah um, no completely it does seem to predominantly affect areas with high levels of ethnic minorities um whereas think... me um in probably the whitest area of the country um <laughs> yeah probably not going to see much of it and it is interesting actually uh going from a Less of a political question. It, it, it comes under politics equally, but in York, um, I, I'm sure you notice it, but it, it's, people do seem to follow the, the rules a whole lot quite well. I know with you, whereas down here, like, like the retail parks are crowded, the supermarkets are crowded, people, people are just getting out because it, it really, I think that really sort of signifies how we haven't really, I, I mean, I've been. You know, in a position where I've seen both sides of it, I've seen where it's really affected the place and obviously where it hasn't, but down in the south, it's, it's I can't, I mean, I can only say for my, for my area, but it does seem to be less of a concern about it than up in the north where yeah. you know, the tier system has really impacted them. But I think as well, that's really interesting, actually, because I think if you're from a tier one area where you kind of get the, get into the mindset that stuff isn't really going to change like there's no threat of going up a tier and when you come out of lockdown you just kind of think you're going to go back into the into tier one straight away i guess you do adopt a sense of complacency because you think there's absolute complacency where i am like yes we're in a pandemic but i'm going to try and live my life as normal as i can whereas i guess up north there is definitely in york I don't know if everyone else has felt the same, but I think there was... Con- even when we were in... When the tier system first got adopted, watching the rest of Yorkshire be placed into, like, tougher restrictions, like, we, I definitely felt like it was always looming, you know? I think oh, yeah, we were always worried well. that it was going to be us next. Whereas, I remember when, even when York was in tier two, I had friends who were in Bristol in tier one and they were all still meeting up and going for food and together, and I was like... Wow. What will be interesting is, um, of course, public perception of this because yeah. increasingly there does seem to be an anti-lockdown sentiment that, that is it's... sweeping increasing, um, increasing groups of the population and perhaps for, I don't want to say good reason, but for justified reason um, because the levels of, of job losses and the levels of hardship that people are experiencing are probably beyond anything we've well, probably maybe even worse than 2008. I, I remember, I mean, I, I wasn't old enough, obviously, to remember much of 2008, <laughs> but I've, I've not lived in a time of this in quite so stark, the number of people losing their jobs and the number of people sort of not being able to work. We can find work because uh, maybe someone who knows better about it than me being of their podcast at the moment telling us that um, it's completely wrong in that. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, for me personally, I, I used to have a holiday job in a, a cinema and obviously that's a big industry yeah. that's been really affected by it um you know the 
And that, that's actually one thing that does seem to have changed with the tier system. It's the nature of it's not only hospitality, it's entertainment venues as well. So it's quite interesting to see where the government wants to focus their tier system on because if you look at a lot of the um, reports, um, and this is again going into probably more um, epidemiology than uh, anything else, but a lot of the cases do seem to be coming from schools and from universities and from educational institutions, and yet these are the... Well, it, I mean, I say that um, it does... Schools seem to be a very big vector for the virus. Um, whether that is entirely accurate or not, I'm not going to say that that is definitive, but from what I've seen, that seems to be it. There does seem to be an indication schools and universities and educational institutions seem to be affected. And, and it's always the reports like those that seem to get brushed under like the rug. Mm, they come out, you get a news notification about them, and then they have like bottom of the news pile. Well, it's very interesting that, um, I don't know whether you noticed on the uh, press conference that did announcing the lockdown, um, the age brackets were very often, actually. Um, you had one bracket which was about, I think, 15 to 44, and then 44 to 54, and then like 54 to 55, 65 plus. In fact, it might even have been 15 to 54, but it was a massive gap. And I think, well, what's driving that? It's, it's young people, it's like, you know, sixth form students, university students who, through no fault of their own, unfortunately, sort of, in a lot of ways, unintentionally spreading the virus because of the nature of the environment that they're in. I think as well, when you are a university student and you're being told that you, like, for York, because we've, we've never gone fully online, we've had blended learning the entire term, so even this week... Now in week three of lockdown, I still have in-person things to attend. Oh, I don't. Oh, really? Yeah, second, second year's run fully online. Yes. Oh, maybe this is a third year thing then. But yeah. I know that um, one of my housemates' girlfriend, for instance, her term has been online the entire time since September. Mm. We've always stuck to the blended approach. And I know that a lot of people think that if like half or even even if a third of their content is going to take place in person, you do want to go because yeah. you can't miss a big portion of why you've come to like moved from home and travelled across the country in the first place. And it all comes down to tuition fees as well. I think the sentiment among everyone at the minute is, well, I am paying £9,250 a year for this. So, and if we're not getting a reduction, then I'm going to go. So like yeah. you said, it's, transmitting the virus in ways that you can't really avoid because you are still being encouraged to go to school slash university there's no way you can't really well exactly and um what's also interesting is obviously a lot of us were working service sector jobs uh, such as restaurant workers during the eat help out scheme in retail and again unintentionally spreading virus i mean i don't know about you but i rarely heard of any house parties or any real big breaches of the rules yeah. by students. I know the media likes to report on them quite often, but the reality for I think for our situation was that there weren't actually there probably were planned ones and there probably ones that did happen, but it seems more common that students are trying to follow the rules and I think particularly in York the reduction in the case numbers and the reduction in the transmission rate has probably come 
well, not necessarily come down to the fact that students are involved, but it definitely is indicative of the fact that rather than trying to break the rules, students do seem to be following the rules as best they can. Yeah, no, I agree. I don't know if we're just biased because we are university students, but I'm on the same same as you. I never heard of or got invited to a like big house party or like you said, I'm sure people were having them, but it wasn't like every person you know was having one or they were like the common way for everyone to get together. I think for the most part, it was just people meeting in the the rule of six, going to the pub, and then when the pub's shut, just, you know, especially because it's the final two weeks now before the travel window does open, just trying to stay as safe as possible so that they can travel home and have a decent Christmas. And I think that, again, circles around to this um, emphasis on Christmas as a, a big sort of driver of, you know, what people want this year. It kind of goes into this whole consumerism and maybe this conservative belief as well because it kind of follows the whole eat out to help out pattern of august time where when the economy's down you need to open it back up for a little bit well i mean that, that was something i was going to bring up when we were talking about the various um, religious festivals um it does seem to be a very economically yeah thing um you will notice that in all three tiers that um shops are being kept open um all shops have been kept open and, and there's a reason for that because they know that the economy needs to run again and to be fair it, it does need there does need to be economic drive yeah um particularly with the amount of inactivity that we've had but obviously um the big area that's going to be suffering this christmas is hospitality because whether you're in tier two or tier three it's um it becomes increasingly difficult for hospitality uh, venues to operate and it's interesting that there was a study that came out, I think it was a few days ago or last week, that the place where there was the highest transmission of COVID was in supermarkets. So I'm guessing that that kind of general rule applies to shops, you know, more widespread, so that when, not, when non-essential shops open back up, they'll be the places where the transmission is higher, the same as if you went to the supermarket. Which is interesting, considering I... I thought it was schools, but yes, it, yeah. it, it's it's not surprising because I know someone. I have a friend who works basically full time in a in a supermarket, and he's saying that you know it's, it's exceptionally busy. It's usually yeah. Well, it's, it um, is like you said. You know, if you've got nothing else to do, I was quite surprised actually. I went to ASDA the other day, and um, there was a lot of controversy in Wales when Wales imposed their fire break because in supermarkets they were shutting off items that were deemed non-essential in some supermarkets it was even as extreme as they had like cordoned off areas that were selling baby clothes and like really got down to the nitty-gritty of what is considered essential and then when I went to Asda in York they like the entire shop was still open and you could like go up to the clothing section or whatnot and there's like two sides of it because obviously you can see why people are angry with being told what on their shop is essential and what is non-essential. But I also did think, if I was bored, I could just go up to like the as the clothes section and spend so much time just browsing, and then that's so many more people that you can pass on your way, and you know like the risk of transmission obviously does increase the longer you stay in a certain place. Yeah, it's a it's a very difficult one 
confidence on the one hand. I think people are bored of this. Now. Yeah. I think that's where the the anti-lockdown sentiment is perhaps going to come in. Is that people are tired? People are tired of um, constantly being locked down. They're tired of not being able to go out to see people, not being able to do the things that they enjoyed, and um, especially with the vaccine news that's come out. Even with the Christmas news, it hasn't been met with the kind of... I don't think the public have taken it as well as the government were expecting. And I think that's because with the news of being able to mix over Christmas immediately in the next breath is, oh, but we might have to do another lockdown for it. Yeah. Well, I think that's the big thing for a lot of people is... It is sort of that trade-off of you get some freedom and then we take it away from you. Yeah. A lot of people don't like that. They don't like the idea that they have to be given their freedom back rather than have it as a innate right. And it will be something that... Because I saw something that said... I'm not sure which one's correct. I saw something that said for every one day of freedom that we're given, we need five days of lockdown to eat, like settle transmission. Then I also saw something about a five-day lockdown. But some people think that by the middle of January we're going to have to go back into a lockdown to make up for the mingling that we have over Christmas. I just think mid-January is probably the most depressing time of the year anyway. Yeah. So I think people are probably thinking middle of January, winter time, Christmas is gone, there's like nothing to look forward to in that time of year, plus going into another lockdown. Is it really worth it? I mean, again, goes back to the student issue. That'll be around the time the lot of universities yeah. are going back. We will be going back around that time. I think a little bit of hope um, <laughs> in the fact that there's now three viable vaccine candidates that uh, have come into to play, uh, all announcing 90% efficacy at least each. I think Oxford yeah. was 70, but they've, they've since said 90. But Yeah, I think, think that- Oxford's was... In in this in a smaller group of people that were tested, it was ninety percent. When they tested on more people, it went down to seventy. But they're hoping that it can prove up to ninety percent the more it gets tested. Well, obviously that that will be a big factor in a whether the public keeps to the to the rules, knowing that that's going to come out. Um, also, the the nature of the program um, that's a vaccination. Yeah. You know, there's talk that it might start in December. Uh, I don't know how realistic that is but there is a sort of rumour that it could start being sent out then Um, and there's a lot of people saying that we'll be back to normal by Easter perhaps. Someone who was the head of the coronavirus task either the the coronavirus task force or the vaccine task force was highly confident that we'd be back to normal by spring I think Matt Mm. Hancock has come out and said that he thinks we'll be back to normal by spring I suppose what you define as normal there probably will still be restrictions on big events. I don't know yeah. when the clubs will be open. Um, they might be, depends. Um, but the level of normality that we will have in spring, I think, will be a lot different from what we're currently... Obviously, very much different from what we're in now and probably yeah. very different from what we had in the summer as well. But yeah, it's, 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 uh, been a, it's been a very... Well, it's been a horrible time to live through. It yeah. has been horrible. I would agree with that, but... It's nice to know that there's an end to it. I think that that's sort of the... Yeah. I don't know whether we want to leave off with that sort of message of hope, that it's it's pretty bad yeah. now. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we've lost, 
we've got a vaccine. We've lost Trump, unless you like Trump. Sorry to all the Trump supporters listening to us. Yeah, unless you're an anti-vaxxer who supports Trump. Yeah. Then this is horrible news. Like Boris. <laughs> worst case scenario. Um, or was a real big Cummings fan. Um, sorry to all you Cummings fans out there. Um, Dominic Cummings, if you listen to this. Um, yeah, sorry. Um, but yeah, I think I think there's a. Um, I think there's some there's some hope. Because it has been absolutely tragic between, you know, I think it's been tragic on a super, not a super, maybe superficial level, as in it's really, you know, changed everyone's lives. Like, this was not, speaking from the student perspective again, this is not how I was expecting my third and final year to go. You're you're in second year. Mm -hmm. I think this is not how you expected your second year to go, like, literally sitting at home. Doing nothing and working. (laughs) And obviously, but then on a much sadder level as well, there have been so many deaths worldwide, but even in the United Kingdom, you know, it really has been absolutely tragic to see and, you know, to see it impact people you know or families you know and just... Yeah, I think that that's where, again, you know, there is a real human cost. Yeah. Or there has been a real human cost to this pandemic. I think, yeah, that's the... That's been the saddest part about it, that everything that has happened, because it's easy to kind of speculate and, you know, propose restrictions and, you know, change things up at the drop of a hat. But at the end of the day, like you said, the cost is human lives, whether that be deaths from the virus or, you know, kind of like we touched on earlier, the viability of businesses and the amount of jobs that have been lost. It really has, you know, de- like devastating effects. Yeah, and... Uh... You know, we talk about it all ending in April, but there's no way to bring back those 60,000, 70,000 people who are dead now because of it. There's no way to bring back, you know, inevitably the more people who will succumb to this virus. And, uh, yeah, it will be a, it'll be a very bittersweet. I think it's something that the aftermath will be felt for a long, long time. That will be the next kind of phase of it. Even when we come out of it, you know, feeling the ripple effects of it in the months slash years after but like you said it's not all completely depressing because we will there will be a vaccine we will one day everything will be normal and this will be something that we talk about as something that happened to us sorry to tell the grandkids etc it's not always gonna be like this um yeah for some of you who are listening it may not even be like it is now for us and you might be listening to this as you're going for your non-essential retail or meeting <laughs> up with your three or four families in your support bubble to all of you listening hope you have a wonderful christmas and a very... yes no matter what it looks like yeah exactly and um a better new year than this one has been um, <laughs> yeah um not that that's going to be particularly difficult but you know but yeah so yes. uh thank you for listening um we'll see you on the next one